Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast once again where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. Chris, how are you this holiday season? I am doing great, John. It was uh, a blast doing Swashbucklers last month uh, with Eric, but I will definitely admit that uh, there, there felt like there was something missing that that monthly um, check-in that you and I have, uh, which is th- of which talking about movies is just really an excuse. Uh, it was missing. So I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back in the regular format uh, here at the end of 2022. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, you know, I'm actually doing fairly well. Um, I was delighted to uh, be able to listen uh, to the uh, conversation you had with Eric last month uh, and only slightly intimidated at the prospect of uh, editing that damn thing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, don't take that as a sign that I don't want to hear you guys talk more because uh, I think I heard you guys mention uh, that you wanted to do this more often and you have my full and wholehearted blessing uh, and know that uh, the amount of editing work I will do on those episodes is minimal. <laughs> <laughs> It's the month of December when we're recording this, and this is usually around the time when holiday things of various traditions and sorts uh, happen for folks. I'm spiting my career uh, prospects uh, by actually taking some time off, but I have one week of absolute hell to get through uh, before I get there. What does the holidays look like for you this time around? The holidays for me look like... um, They look like they always do, which is try to figure out the logistics of... Uh, being with my wife's family, who is, you know, a hundred thousand strong, all based in a small uh, area of Queens, New York, because she is, of course, Italian. And though I don't want to reinforce stereotypes, uh, they uh, do it for me. They do it gladly for me. Uh, and then trying to, uh, go on the other side and be with my family, of which there are like four of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and are uh, hundreds uh, of miles away, so it's always a uh, always a fun logistical uh, puzzle to solve. Uh, I'm in of the same boat as you. I have two weeks left uh, next week and the week after, and then I have also taken about ten eleven days off just to uh, decompress and gear up for what is going to be a hectic twenty twenty three. So this was a nice kind of break to kind of sit for December because the theme of the episode. Um, holiday movies that aren't actually holiday movies. Uh, everyone talks about what's a Christmas movie. And, and the big debate is typically Die Hard. Die Hard is a movie that uses Christmas as a setting and as a place and time to add a little bit of luster and add a little bit of, uh, uniqueness to its, its action film. It is a fantastic movie. It's a movie that I love dearly. That doesn't make it a Christmas movie, at least to me, John. Let's talk about a couple of movies that utilize the holidays as settings that utilize the holiday as kind of a place and misunseen, but they're not actually Christmas movies. The movies we're talking about today are, uh, I, I think, are are fun movies, and we can talk about how the the holiday theme either you know uh, how it how it works with the uh, the themes going on in both of these movies. And since uh, and since you set it up front, this started as a conversation about uh, me never having seen the movie Gremlins. Why don't we get started with our first movie of the night, which is Gremlins. <laughs> So, 
Gremlins, 1984 American black comedy horror film, if you're looking up Wikipedia. But that's not really what matters here. What matters is the pedigree of the people behind the scenes for Gremlins. Uh, we're talking about uh, Joe Dante in the director's chair, written by Chris Columbus. Uh Produced by Steven Spielberg. This was a huge get together of minds, um, at the time in 1984, starring, uh, Zach Allegan, Phoebe Cates, um, a, a whole host of great people. Judge Reinhold is in it. Um, so it is somewhat of a Phoebe Cates, Judge Reinhold reunion after Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I definitely clocked that part. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I've, I've seen these two together before. Yeah, <laughs> and they do have a, 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 a brief but very kind of funny sequence in the film. Uh, but what's the movie about? The movie is about uh, Billy Peltzer, kind of a young kid who is uh, trying to find his way in a town that is very similar to, and you'll see a lot of call-outs and a lot of references, um, to Bedford Falls from It's a Wonderful Life. He is just a young kid working at a bank, savings and loan, if you will. Uh, the whole town is kind of down on their luck. They're kind of being held ransom by the evil. Mrs. Deagle, who is super rich and prone to litigation and just being, she's like the nasty old mean uh, Mr. Potter of, of, of the town. Um, his father, uh, Randall Peltzer, is a crazy inventor who kind of goes door to door, kind of selling his, his wares like the bathroom buddy, these hapless kind of um, inventions that invariably fail or uh, break down, like Mr. Popeil type inventions. Um, so the movie is about uh, the dad, Randall Peltzer, going into Chinatown one day, because uh, every Midwestern town has a Chinatown. Um, of course. And he discovers, uh, l looking for a gift for his son, he discovers this creature called the Mogwai. Uh, this gorgeous, cuddly, little furry thing, kind of like a super cute, tiny koala mixed with an Ewok type of deal. Um, and he brings it home. He, 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 he kind of back alley gets it, uh, from the old man's grandson who sells it to him for 200 bucks. And he brings it to Billy as a new pet. The thing is this, uh, Mogwai has very specific rules in order to keep it. Okay. The first rule is you have to keep it out of sunlight, especially, uh, any type of bright light, but direct sunlight would actually kill him. So stay away from bright lights. Number two, don't get it wet. Whatever you do, don't feed it water. Don't give it a bath. No water. And whatever you do, the one thing you have to remember is don't feed the mogwai after midnight. Why? Well, as Billy finds out, if you feed a mogwai after midnight, you get gremlins. Um, and that's really what this movie is about. Uh, there's a, a lot kind of going on that we can talk about the commentary and, and kind of some of the things that are being said under the story. But basically, this is what happens to a 1940s kind of Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra town when you rip it with some teeth and you instill a bunch of monsters in it. That's what the gremlins are. Um, so John, uh, kind of, kind of jumping off into the film a little bit. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on here. It definitely takes some tonal turns. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I know this was fresh for you. So kind of the thing I wanted to ask you is how does this sit with a guy watching it for the first time in the year 2022 when we are decades away at this point from, the type of movie and the type of kind of um, ploys that would create something like a gizmo, like a mogwai today, which which at, at the time everyone loved gizmo. It was it's it, adorable. You, you, you could tell that they were trying to sell 
merchandise when they were also making that creature. Um, 100%, yeah. I, you know, that was a lot of what the 80s was. Um, so it kind of sat right in there perfectly. You saw it for the first time f- almost 40 years later. So how did how did its tone sit with you? And then ultimately, what did you think of the film? I think that the 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 Chinatown stuff uh felt a bit weird because it sort of establishes this it's it's the establishing part of the movie right is is Randall Peltzer uh going into uh to get the present but then and then it shows up obviously uh towards the end but like for the for the most part this is not like big trouble in little china that's not what the movie is fundamentally about um i think that like if we don't talk about tonal shifts between like the the nice sweet christmasy small towny it's wonderful life stuff against the horror parts of it like i i found myself not nearly as like wigged out by that as the as the as the transition from the early chinatown stuff into the rest of the movie that was the part that kind of threw me off a little bit i was like wow there's more and again i just you know for lack of a better term big trouble in little china in this intro part of the movie than i would have expected um so yeah that that's a bit uh off with me i think that when we're talking about hammer horror when we're talking about how some of the filmmaking styles and techniques felt very familiar even for movies i've never seen before this does a similar thing for me of like yeah i've having seen you know your the 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 canonical 80s movies or whatever uh this feels very much a a piece with that and so there's a there's a comfort and familiarity with especially if you're talking about the holiday stuff i think works very well what i was pleasantly surprised by i suppose uh was that was the Peltzer family dynamic like they all kind of know that Rand's inventions suck but they don't that's not a point of contention in the movie like no one's telling him he shouldn't do the thing like they're just they seem to be a a family that's supportive and loves each other and I kind of like that because if you're thinking of your Steven Spielberg type movies you expect there to be a lot of broken home divorce stuff and this is not that movie and so I was pleasantly surprised I suppose by some of that stuff one of the things that I that by I, I watched this with my wife my wife had also never seen the film uh, because she's not she's not a big horror or monster person so back then it was a little too intense for her so I said you know let's just come and watch it and one of the first things that we said was <clears throat> Especially for the 80s, this felt like a real family. That felt like a real mom and dad, like growing up. It wasn't like now every mom is somewhat glamorous and almost a little too glamorous to be like a hard put upon mom. This just seemed like a regular mom and dad growing up. And their dynamic felt very, very familiar. I think it's one of the charms of this movie. Um and a credit to um, both Joe Dante and Chris Columbus. You talk about Spielberg and yeah, c- kind of injecting fractured homes. But when I think of Chris Columbus, I don't think of that. I think of things like Home Alone, and I think about how family is so important, you know, in his films. Even when he did the first two Harry Potter films, it, you know, those are things that are of interest to him. And you see that. You see how wonderful the family dynamic is in Gremlins, and I think that's a credit to Columbus's writing. Um, and to Dante's direction too, um, we can talk a, like about a, a, a little bit how jarring uh, the Chinatown sequence is before it comes to um, you know back home to kind of Middle America. I just kind of took that as um, just trying to get the story moving forward. You know, 
how do you come up with like a creature that no one's seen before? Oh, well, you make it kind of, and look, this is the eighties and things are not going to be as racially sensitive as they should be. Yeah. But like, oh, you just go to Chinatown and they got weird crap all over in those shops. And that's how you find your thing. Like to me, it just seemed like a, a way to get like a source for what you want to do in the main part of your story. Um, but what I found really, what really touched for me in my rewatch this time is I don't think we give Joe Dante enough credit as a director. Uh, he is very specific. He is a person who grew up loving the movies of the past and, but he also really grew up loving Looney Tunes and loving Bugs Bunny. Um, to the point where there is a wonderful shot of Billy at the bar drawing and this guy next to him goes, Oh, you're doing really good there, Billy. You're coming along. And he says, thank you, Mr. Jones. And that is, of course, Chuck Jones, the great director uh, for Bugs Bunny oh, and all the Looney Tunes stuff. Like that is a very definite homage, as are some of the more overt references when we get to some of the mayhem that the gremlins cause. But Dante is a master of kind of like building that kind of 1940s Capra-esque feel and then injecting kind of Looney Tunes nonsense into it, whether he's using kind of crazy lighting techniques to move stuff back and forth or whether he's doing some beautiful, there are some beautiful effects in here, um, optical effects and, and matte paintings. Uh, the, the town is largely matte painted, um, except for the very obvious studio lot. The, the one thing that kind of struck me this time that I never thought about before, John, I don't know if you had the same response is this takes place during Christmas. So everyone's bundled up in their coats, but it looks like it is 75 degrees out <laughs> and they try to make it look as cold as possible because you know, this is like a back lot in Burbank. It's actually a very specific back lot in Burbank because if you were to kind of squint your eyes a little bit and you were to take away uh, all of the snow and you were to put a DeLorean on that lot, it is exactly the same lot where they did Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of fun. And you talked about the 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 Bugs Bunny uh, aspect of it. I think that uh, where I think this movie is probably at its, like, everything is firing on all c- cylinders uh, and just everything is, like, glorious and I'm 100% locked in is the sequence towards the end when uh, all the gremlins are just doing people things. Like, just causing chaos at the bar. Like, playing cards and costumes and stuff. Just, like, just it, it was that that part for me. I think more so than uh, than anything else is where I, th- I was. Where I was like, yeah, this movie fucking rules. <laughs> it it takes a sharp left turn from um, kind of the earlier sequences where it it actually gets. And this is what I love about the movie too. It's hard to like realize back then how fresh it was to see a movie like this have the teeth that it has. Like there are some wonderfully violent and kind of crazy horrific moments. There's the moment where um, in two separate locations in Billy's attic bedroom and in a school where one of the Mogwais is under observation by a high school science teacher, both of them get access to food after midnight and they cocoon. And they turn into the gremlins. The sequence where the teacher is attacked and ultimately killed by the gremlin in the classroom, that's that's just a straight-up horror film right there. And I love that Dante is not afraid to tonally shift and like do a hard shift and just yeah. go to that overt horror. There's a sequence later on where everything is running amok and the gremlins are just causing all types of chaos. And some of it is very funny. There's one gremlin that 
has figured out uh, how to take the wires and change the streetlights. And he's causing accidents by switching the wires around. Like, don't ask for the logic of how a gremlin who has no concept of kind of mechanics or electrical engineering kind of figures out what to do to make cars crash. It's just, it's part of the, part of the fun of the movie. Um, but in that same sequence, there are two cops driving down the street and they see a guy dressed as Santa Claus run out of a house with gremlins like all over his body. <laughs> over. And it's terrifying. It is a moment like, like this is a kid's film. But this movie does not for a second care about the um, sanctity of Christmas. And in fact, it's almost like Dante is sticking his nose out at the sanctity of Christmas by having the Santa Claus basically get devoured by gremlins, by having Mino Mrs. Deagle basically shot out of her house in, I think, one of the best practical effects oh my God, in I the film, having so her much. blow out like a rocket. And uh, meet her untimely uh, end, uh, and then to go right to your point, then we 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 get to the bar, and it becomes again a completely different movie. Again, we have um, gremlins playing poker. We have gremlins in drag. We have a gremlin who looks like a New York mugger, circa circa nineteen eighty three. We have gremlins flash dancing. We have gremlins in leg warmers. You know, which is all you need to know. We have one gremlin who I think is Tom Waite sitting at the corner of a bar, smoking and drinking very quietly, listening to jazz music. And that, and that was and that was just Tom Waits in some light makeup. That wasn't even a that wasn't even a practical effect. And that was my wife's favorite moment of the film because you just have this like tinky jazz playing and just this like really cool gremlin just kind of sitting there. He's got the hat on. And another gremlin comes up with hand puppets and starts making hand puppet noises. Like there's no reason for this to exist, but in the universe that Dante creates, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And I really love its kind of zaniness for that. I don't know that it all works. The acting sadly kind of does take me out of the movie quite a little bit there's actors here that you know we recognize we'll see in other things but uh <clears throat> i i think that the the marvels and joys of this movie mostly come down to the creatures themselves and uh whether they're being actual menaces as you mentioned like in that that, that sh uh, scene in the school or whether they're just getting up to some some bugs bunny shit like yeah. i think when when the when the stuff is focused on the creatures themselves is when it does well and otherwise when things really started getting silly is when i sort of locked in with this movie but up until then i kind of had the reaction that i do to some of the sort of classic 80s movies that i may have seen once or twice as kids but don't have the attachment and, and, and clear and like let's be absolutely clear there are absolutely movies from my childhood that I will like have weirdly unhealthy uh, attachments to. But when people talk about how much they love Goonies, for example, I just have to go oh, shrug and go, okay, that's cool. Like, and and that's mostly what I'm just going to chalk it up to is that this is like, uh, for a good chunk of this movie, it's a movie that's like, it's okay. It's, it's fine. Uh, it's not something that I have any particular attachment to. Um, but then every, all the gremlins started going nuts. And I was like, okay, actually, this is this is a step above that for me. Yeah, I, I think there is a level of nostalgia at play with this film. When you have those people that are like, this is the greatest thing of all time. I think they're remembering how it made them feel when they were of a certain age and had seen it. Um, and I had that. I'll, I I won't lie. I love this, this, this movie. And when you said you hadn't seen it, I was like, oh, this is such a great opportunity for me to revisit one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up. And watching it now is like, oh, this, 
Yeah, this didn't age nearly as well, if I'm going to be honest with myself, as I remember. There's still stuff that I love. I, I think from a technical perspective, I really do love this film. And I love the chances that it takes with just baring its teeth. Definitely game to, uh, definitely fun to have seen it again. My wife is firmly with you. We we watched the, the movie. She had never seen it before. So this was her first time watching it. And when it was over, she was like, well, I laughed, you know five or six times pretty heavily. Uh, but man, that was a pretty stupid movie <laughs> overall. <laughs> and it was the same thing. Like she had appreciated certain things. Um, she is a massive back to the future fan. So it was her who actually was like, that's the back lot where they shot back to the future. And they even like Dante pulls the camera back and you see a street light and a wire going across the street. She's like, that's where they hooked the DeLorean to go to 88 miles an hour. So, you know, it, oh, yeah. her nostalgia for another movie was helping her to color this film. Um, uh, and if there's a good place to kind of end, it's with another question that I'll ask for the movie. Um, talking about things that seem kind of unrealistic tonally, like with what the gremlins do at the movie theater and at the bar, is that any more unrealistic than what, uh, Lynn Peltzer, Billy's mom does when she totally becomes Ninja Rambo and kills like four gremlins in the house? <laughs> With a knife. That might be my other favorite moment of the film. Just how badass mom becomes to protect the household from these invaders. Uh, and that is also vicious and incredibly violent. Uh, but I love that part. <laughs> is it any more unrealistic, John? I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's comparably less realistic, but it's absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That with that that the part with the mom going on the assault there is is is, is fantastic and uh, as is probably one of the best human one of the best sections of the movie to feature humans, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's Gremlins. Um, again, a tonally uh, kind of a. Crazy film uh, that definitely uses the hol holidays to its advantage. I wonder, John, if our next film is equally as successful. There's only one way to find out. Let's talk about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came out in 2005, uh, written and directed by Shane Black, and stars Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, and uh, Michelle Monaghan. This is a neo-noir uh, movie, uh, which is funny to think about because I just happened to catch this movie randomly. I have no context for it. Meanwhile, you're sitting over here, and this is like a movie that is 100% in dialogue with some of your favorite movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but it just so happens to be that uh, I remember watching this movie when it came out. It was uh, There was a cheap theater. A friend of mine said he had seen it and liked it, and I went and I saw it, and I was like, oh, look at all this witty and clever dialogue. This is really funny. And then like three or four years later, sure enough, we get Robert Downey Jr. As, as Iron Man basically doing the same bit. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, now we get to do this for what would turn out to be like 10, 15 years. Well, and then a few years later from Iron Man, you get Shane Black directing Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man in Iron Man 3, right? So this whole thing becomes full sucker for them. So, I mean, we can't talk about the the Robert Downey Jr.-ness of it and how it almost... I, I don't know if this if Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has any formal relation to him being cast as Iron Man or if it's just a weird, like, nah, this is just the thing that he does. But I actually, like, f like, I guess we could start off with the first thing, which is 
I think this is probably the first movie I'd ever seen Robert Downey Jr. in because I never saw. Oh, I, I, I would I would have been a kid when <laughs> I would have been a kid when he was doing movies and. From the stuff that I've heard, like nothing, he wouldn't have been in anything that I would have seen as a child. So, um, okay. this was sort of, I guess, my first time watching him in a in a movie, and was uh, delighted at the time. The one thing that I'll say is, having grown up with Robert Downey Jr. in a lot of films, uh, we were talking before about like the John Hughes and the eighty films. I mean, he was in things like he's in Weird Science, he's in. My brain just turned off the one with Ronnie Dangerfield back to school. Uh, obviously, um, a slightly different tonal film, but he's in less than zero. He's in a ton of those movies. A Tough Turf. One of my favorite stupid 80s movies with James Spader. He's in Tough Turf and he's fantastic. Robert Downey Jr. has always kind of been fully formed as Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so you weren't missing much when you saw him here. If you saw him in the earlier stuff, I mean, he's playing bit parts, but he, I mean, there's a reason why... Robert Downey Jr. is a superstar. He is one of the most charismatic people I've ever seen. And even in those early films where he's playing either a bad guy or just a side character or just doing two or three scenes, he's very recognizable as Robert Downey Jr. That persona has been there, maybe not as fully fleshed out as it is now, but that persona has been there since the beginning. That's that's helpful. And, and again, my initial reaction to him being Iron Man was, oh, well, I did really like him in Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. And so it, it, there was a sense that it made there. It sounds like this is more like, rather, his vibe is consistent, let's just say. Yeah, somewhat. The interesting thing about Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang for me is um, this is Shane Black's directorial debut, but this is not my first exposure to Shane Black. Um, Shane Black had been a writer for a number of movies, um, probably most closely aligned to this movie. And one that we'll probably talk about a little bit is uh, he was the writer of Lethal Weapon. He was the mm -hmm. writer of The Monster Squad, The Last Boy Scout uh, with Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis, Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, Gina Davis, Samuel L. L. Jackson. I mean, um, the Shane Black shtick has been around well before Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, that witty dialogue, that banter back and forth, that almost 1940s patter has been there in other films. Um Probably not as overt um, with all of his predilections as it is here in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, though. For sure. And uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm thinking about the I mean, I've seen uh, most of these movies uh, where he's listed as the writer. Uh, <laughs> if I'm not uh, <laughs> if I'm honest with myself, though, I think that his uh, acting uh, in Predator is probably where I <laughs> yes, <laughs> most, mostly associate him with. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we just quickly uh, run down like sort of a brief premise of the uh, of the movie, which is that Robert Downey Jr. Uh, plays uh, plays a, a small uh, small time crook who. Um, while on the run in a intense botched robbery, uh, stumbles into an ac acting audition where he accidentally 
acts himself into a invitation to go out to LA to screen test for some movies because they think he's acting and not actually freaked out because he got his uh, partner shot, which by the way, uh, having recently watched the show, Barry is very, it's, it's, it's kind of weird how the, the premise for both that, that show and this movie are uh, guy doing criminal shit is having a moment about all the criminal shit he's done. And people think he's acting as like, Oh, you should be an actor. (laughs) From there, he ends up at uh, he ends up at a, a party in Hollywood where he runs into, uh, amongst other people, Perry Van Shrike, played by uh, Val Kilmer, who goes by the nickname of Gay Perry. That might be the best joke in the film, actually. Yeah, yeah. The where like where RDJ feels the need to clarify uh, about the nature of his nickname, and and Val Kilmer's like, "No, I'm knee deep in pussy, but I could I like the nickname so much I couldn't get rid of it." <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. ends up being sent with Val Kilmer to go on some real life stakeouts because uh gay perry is a detect as a, is a private eye so he's going to go hang out with him to, like a, in a sort of ride along type situation so that they can get a sense of what it's like to do acting and hopefully do better for his screen test he finds himself attracted to uh this woman uh harmony faith lane who's played by michelle monahan and at first he just wants to hook up with her, but then realizes that it's actually his, uh, one of his oldest friends from high school. And so they, they reconnect and there's a mystery that involves Harmony's sister. And then there's also a, uh, a mystery that involves, uh, uh, the, the stakeout that they're on involving the daughter of a, uh, the daughter of a, a rich film producer guy. Um, and the, it, I mean, from there, it is basically a, like a noir mystery film with a lot of uh, jokes and uh, sort of meta commentary around the whole unrolling of the story with RDJ acting not as a, only as our protagonist, but as our narrator and occasionally interrupting the movie to be like, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you this important detail. There's a lot of fourth wall uh, breaking. Yeah, there, there, there is a lot of it. Um, Chris, I guess the question I want to ask you going into this is someone who actually like, I think I, because I have these years of doing the podcast with you under my belt, I feel like I'm in a better position to now actually appreciate what the movie was doing when I watched it all those many years ago. Um, But as someone who would have known about this, like known the context for this movie, like going into watching it and being able to pick up the sort of threads that it's working with immediately. Like, like all the chapters or Raymond Chandler mystery novels. Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Like how does, how does this playing with a genre that you are intimately familiar with? Like, how does that, like, how does that sit with you? Like, or it has that changed over time. It, it has changed over time dramatically. Um, and it, it still, it, it still sits with me well. I'll be honest, not as well as it did when I first saw it. So um, it's definitely a neo-noir. It, neo-noir. It's Shane Black. It is the most Shane Black, Sh- Shane Black thing I have ever seen. Slightly to its detriment, I think. Um, I think when Shane Black is kind of wrangled a little bit, it comes off better. So I was thinking uh, there is there are two films. I mean, well, there are really three films that Shane Black did that but two films in particular that take a place across the holidays and have a mismatched pair of partners uh, that get into crazy mysteries and have to kind of fight their way out of them. 
And unfortunately, this is my second favorite of the two. The first one being the first Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson and uh, Danny Glover. Um, I, I think when you have like Richard Donner directing and kind of wrangling Shane Black in, it works really well. Um, this movie where Shane Black is kind of untethered, it loses the thread a little bit. Um, I think the mystery is so convoluted that it almost doesn't work. The only reason why it works is because, holy shit, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Like, that's it. Holy shit, those two actors. Their chemistry is on fire. Their patter is on fire. With the exception of, and I'll say this, this was an interesting thing watching it now in 2022 as opposed to, what was this, 2005, 2006? Okay, 2005. Um, The Gay Perry thing is still really funny when Val Kilmer is doing it because Val Kilmer is obviously playing someone who's gay and he's fully comfortable being gay. Robert Downey Jr. is not as comfortable with Val Kilmer being gay. And man, that does not hold up nearly as well. When we used to make jokes about gay people in the movies, uh, it's a little cringy now, but they're so charming and their chemistry is so strong that it kind of, it kind of seals it over a little bit. It makes it okay. Um, but this is a movie that is so loose and so shaggy in its actual plot and story that if it didn't have the performances it has, not only from both of them, but Michelle Monaghan is a fucking delight in this movie. Oh my God. I realize, like, I, the one thing I was watching with my wife and my son, <laughs> who, uh, we'll just say, uh, my son is 15. Everyone has different kind of criteria for what they'll let their children watch. I thought this would be okay. I was not readily prepared for all of the sex, uh, child molestation and cursing and gay jokes that went on in this movie. So we had to kind of have that conversation. Just be aware, just be aware your mileage may vary there. But, um, uh, Michelle Monaghan, like, like as we were watching her, we were like, what, why is she not literally in everything? Uh, she is so bright. She is so vibrant. She is such an equal to Kilmer and Downey Jr. in this this movie um, that uh, I I miss her presence. I know she's been in a bunch of other things, and I've seen her in a bunch of other in other things, but uh, not to the extent that I've seen Robert Downey Jr. Obviously, um, and even Val Val Kilmer, who's had his ups and downs, but at you know had his time of being a massive star for quite a while. Um, so, in answer to your your question, I mean. This ticks a lot of my buttons because it is very much patterned off of the noir films of the 40s and, and the 50s. And it's got the rapid fire dialogue of something like the thin man and, 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 and the, and the mysteries and the relationships therein. But from a story perspective, it's a little too shaggy. Um, and its threads hang a little too barely than I remember seeing this almost 20 years ago. What do you feel seeing it? Cause I know you said this was your first Robert Downey Jr. film that you had seen. I don't know when you had first come across it, but how long has it been since you'd seen it? And, 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 and what are your thoughts revisiting it now? I mean, I've seen it a handful of times, uh, in years gone by. I think I saw it when it was in theaters. Um, <clears throat> and I've seen it, you know, a handful of times since then i think that like you this was the time where i I don't remember when i saw it last but definitely this was the time like you where i where i saw it and uh 
you you were talking about Robert Downey Jr.'s, uh, you know, gay panic stuff and that not sitting well with you. I was actually thinking about Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, <laughs> slut shaming of Michelle Monaghan. Oh my goodness! And yeah. as being like, oh man, this is not <clears throat> this is uh, this is not great. And like, and but and, but, and but to be that- fair, in that sequence. He gets his comeuppance, like he slut shames her, and he has this whole, like he he slut shames her, and then he has this whole sequence at the bar at at the party, where he basically just slut shames all of Los Angeles's female population. Yeah, and he gets his comeuppance there a little bit, but they're all like, "Well, fuck you, you're an asshole." Like the entire bar apparently overhears the conversation and tells him he's an ass, um, and he and is he, an ass. That's yeah. the one great thing about the, this movie too is that. Uh, the one thing that I will give it is that we're so used to Robert Downey Jr. being Iron Man. And it, look, the, I know Iron Man's arc. Please, Marvel fans, don't fucking come at me for this. I, I don't give a shit. But like, we're used to a guy having all the answers and having everything. We've seen Robert Downey as Sherlock Holmes, who has all the answers and knows everything, right? He's always at the top of his game. I don't know about Dr. Doolittle, and I refuse to know about Dr. Doolittle. So we'll yes. put that, that movie aside. I don't know what that is, and I refuse to acknowledge <laughs> but it. But it was kind of fun seeing him be such a doofus fuck up in this movie. I really enjoyed that. I think he he comes across as really enjoying being such a dick and such a doofus in this this movie um so i did enjoy that so i think some of those things with like like this the slut shaming is intentional the gay panic stuff it's not as easy to excuse i think that i mean not that the slut shaming would be okay if it was a different actress but i feel like in in talking about how clearly michelle monaghan is winning in this movie oh totally just really just really just sort of puts our dj to shame like especially when he was when he would go late years on to do iron man of course you started to think of this movie as being like an rdj movie and it and it very he's at the center of this movie i mean he should should be recognized as such but the if if it was anyone other than rdj in that in that particular role like he is so handsome and charismatic why is he talking about like it, it almost feels weird for him to be talking about like you know various incel talking points uh coming out of rdj's yeah. mouth it's he's weird. like you are handsome and charismatic you if you there's no way that you are a person who has trouble attracting women like that is uh it, it sits a bit weird i'll say this about the movie and it, it kind of draws a nice parallel to what we talked about in gremlins this is a movie where everyone is attractive. Part yeah. of that is intentional because it's Los Angeles, but part of it is also because it's 2005 and no one in studio movies are ugly. Even the ugly people are not ugly, right? So you have to suspend your disbelief and feel that like Robert Downey Jr. just never got the girl because he's such a schmo. As opposed to Gremlins, which in 1985, it's... Almost to watch it now is refreshing to see how normal people look. No one looks like a Sports Illustrated model. No one looks like, you know, they've been working out like Chris Hemsworth for the, for the role. They just look like normal people. The moms look like moms and the dads look like dads. Whereas, which is insane when you think about like even Phoebe Cates, who like again we were talking, we briefly mentioned Phoebe Fast Cates Times is gorgeous. at Ridgemont High. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but but, but 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 looks recognizably like human in that. In she Gremlins. looks completely human. It's the way she's dressed. It's yeah. her hair. It's her persona. That kind of thing went away 
And I, I don't know that we're back there yet. When you still look at all these movies of these people playing these roles and it's everyone is attractive on everyone is attractive in the movies because if you're not attractive, they're afraid that no one's going to come see the movie. Even the uh, the agent who's basically oh, Larry setting Miller, the up. Comedian. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. He, he it's not that he like he everyone just sort of looks like that they're at the top sort of version of themselves, I guess. Yeah. Um, and and I think that like my ultimate takeaway from the from the movie this time around is that like obviously everyone's beautiful and gorgeous and stuff, but like the the with the side characters who don't have as much to do, like their di- like they hit their dialogue uh, in the way that you need them to hit their dialogue, so all that stuff works. And for your two of your three leads, Val Kilmer and Michelle Monaghan, they're just absolutely killing it. And it's really at this point, if there's a weak point in this movie, I think it's actually probably RDJ. Which is weird because he's the selling point and like and the strength of his and the charismatic like he's still he's still good, but I but all of the things that I've that sit weird with this movie are sort of centered around him, his character, I guess. And whereas yeah. everyone else I'm just like, yeah, no, everyone else is this every like he I guess he's like and maybe it's just because he's pretending to be like, you know, the real tough guy from New York. Uh, whereas all these LA phonies, maybe that's the dynamic they're going for, well, but like, I think it's a combination of that. And I think again, Shane Black can't get out of his own way. The story is just too convoluted. You have three great characters that have to go through these crazy machinations to get to the end of the plot. And they're so crazy that I think it, I think the characters suffer a little bit. If it was a little bit more streamlined, I think Robert Downey Jr. would be. I think he would be I don't think he comes off badly. I think I have a better impression of him than you do in the movie. But I think he would come off even better if the movie weren't so shaggy. Um there's a great moment in the beginning or two um he winds up killing somebody. Um and it's fairly well the the second, third, fourth and fifth times are very different. But the first time um is kind of dramatic. It it's it's he's been put into such a high pressure situation. Something happens. He's hiding under a bed. A woman who's on top of the bed is shot and killed and falls to the ground. He had been hunted and chased and he finally just kind of loses it. And it's, this is why you hire Robert Downey Jr. That scene is That's a great scene. phenomenal. He kills somebody and then he just kind of has a breakdown. He has, he says he calls Perry and he's like, I've just killed a person. I've never killed somebody before. I don't know. And Perry's yelling, I'm like, go, just get out of there. And he's like, and he can't, he's paralyzed. And he just says, I can't move. I've killed somebody. I don't know what to do. And it's so good. It's such a great moment. 20 minutes later, he kills another person on accident and it's done purely for comedy. 20 minutes later, he kills like five people within 30 seconds. Like he is Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon. (laughs) So it's a little like he does a move at the end of this movie where he is I won't explain what happens, but he's hanging off an overpass by a corpse's arm in a coffin Mm -hmm. that has a gun on top of the coffin. He slides the gun down, catches it in his hand. We've established earlier that he's really good with his hands because he was a magician as a kid. Um, But he grabs the gun, kills Corbin Burnson, kills two other people, jumps to the ground and lives. It's astounding. Uh, That's my problem with with the movie because – 
it has to jump through all of these hoops to get the story to where it needs to go. It kind of kills Robert Downey's Jr. character a little bit. Like it makes him do things that for me, the suspension of disbelief breaks a little bit toward the end where it becomes like a superhero action movie where it shouldn't. Cause that's not who we've been led to have to believe Robert Downey Jr. is as a character. Um, so I think that's where the problem is to your point. Harmony and Gay Perry are, um, their arcs and their characters are super defined and straight and great. Um, Downey has to roll with the plot. And that's what I think is his downfall in the movie and what I find shaggy about it. By the way, if you want to talk about like things that make this film feel dated, it's not problematic, but then, but him calling out the, uh, the multiple endings of Return of the King <laughs> was like, <laughs> yes. wow, this is a moment in time where people were still mad about that. That was, that was something. But when he's sort of narrating, when the sort of after all the business on the freeway happens and they're in the hospital sort of convalescing and you get, Perry rolling in after he's been shot and it's been established that he is like dead. Uh, and then to have him roll in, in a wheelchair and suddenly he's alive. And then narrator RDJ starts talking about like, like, fuck you. What are you going to do about it? Like, right. It's, <clears throat> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movie. This is what, or no, the way, the way they did, they justified is they say like something to the effect of, look, I know it's cheesy when movies do it, but this is what really happened. So deal with it. And I was that, that part for me, I was like, I don't think I ever especially loved that part, but I think that actually for me probably resonates with your point the most of just like, yeah, Val Kilmer needs to live. That's another point where, so right to your point, and it gets back to the thing that I said earlier, another director would have reined that in. The narration is fine, but some of the weird fourth wall breaking, like there's a whole sequence earlier in the movie where he talks about like a killer robot but then forgets about it and says, oh, I forgot about the killer robot. Here, you want to see the scene with the killer robot? Here's the fucking scene with the killer robot. And it just shows a scene that literally has no bearing on the rest of the movie. It's a little too clever for its own good. And I think the narration is great. And a stronger director would have realized like, hey, you don't need all these other fucking asides. Just do the narration. Just make it like a neo-noir with the narration and just roll through. And some of that weird stuff where it's constantly breaking and like the film actually flips and stutters in the, in the, in the course of the story, I think we would have done away with that. And it would have been a little bit of a smoother ride. I still come away from this being fairly positive on the movie. And, and, and I guess we haven't really talked about it, but like, is there anything actually is there any real meaningful like holiday connection uh, to this other than just Shane Black likes to set his movies at Christmas no, time? No, not really. The ho- the holiday plays no part of this. It's just window dressing. But that's what Shane Black does. <laughs> and like, and as a this is a style like this is part of my stylistic oeuvre is to to just have my movies be set at Christmas. Like, I have no objection about me it, either. but it doesn't move the needle at all for me. It's just a fact that you notice. And it just sort of goes in one ear and out the other. I think what it does here is that it makes, I mean, really the only thing it does here is it puts Michelle Monaghan in that Santa outfit (laughs) for the wonderful scene where she realizes that a stakeout that Perry is on is actually an attempt to kill him. So she has to run out of her job as like a sexy Santa girl to go save him. That's really what it's there for. It's, it's there. It is in this case, it's purely there for window dressing, which doesn't entirely make me mad. Like, because 
I think it makes it just a little bit more special that you have. We were talking about this before off, um, off the podcast. If the, if the setting does nothing else, it sets your expectations because you see the iconography of Christmas. You see the iconography of the holidays and it puts you in a particular frame of mind. And then that frame of mind gets inverted and it gets turned and it gets twisted by the action that you see on screen. And I think Shane Black knows that. And I think that's why Lethal Weapon, Iron Man 3, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, right? I think even the long kiss goodnight takes place over the holidays. I think that's why he does it because he counts on you having certain emotional and resonant responses to some of the imagery for Christmas that's on screen and then taking that and twisting it by the action and the dialogue and the story that comes to pass. Um, so I don't hate it. All right, let's wrap up tonight's episode with our usual recommendation segment. Uh, I'll go first this time around. Uh, I have uh, two of them, and neither of them are movies. Uh, the first up is the uh, Bill Hader HBO show uh, Barry, which I mentioned uh, earlier when, when talking about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, my wife and I just watched the first uh, the the three seasons that are currently out for that show, and uh, boy, the first two seasons of that show are great. Um, just absolute magic, uh, as far as, uh, um, the mixing the com it's the whole thing of, uh, Bill Hader is a, an assassin who tries to become an actor and all of the misadventures that he gets up to there. Uh, third season is, yeah, I, I feel like they, I, I feel like the, the, the tone, they, they, they accidentally, uh, turned the, the grim dial up just a bit too much uh in the third season uh but uh the first two seasons are just absolutely phenomenal and i highly recommend it um the second thing i wanted to mention uh because if there's one thing that uh, has had me in the absolute grips of passion over the last few months and i took last month off uh and when we recorded the hammer episode i was i had yet to see the full revealed glory that is motherfucking andor um to be clear that's and, the title is just andor not motherfucking andor because disney would never have allowed that i i will submit a petition uh to allow the show to be officially renamed legally speaking uh holy goddamn shit andor is quite possibly my favorite like and i'm about to say like hey i have a personal motto which is to uh never express an opinion about star wars on the internet and i'm about to break that personal motto because i haven't liked star wars as much as i like andor since the 1980s um this is better than all of the prequels all of the sequels and even the show uh, and all the TV shows. Uh, and there's stuff within all of that that I like to varying amounts. Uh, but Andor is heads and tails uh, above it all. And it boils down to an excellent uh, conceptualization, uh, writing, acting, performing. There's almost like the, the, there is hardly any noticeable audience pandering as far as uh bringing in like which is weird for a show that's about a character you've saw in a movie um it it absolutely was presented in its conception as being like here's a you know here's following an obscure star wars character so you can be excited that this obscure star wars character is getting a show but really <laughs> 
and while Diego Luna is very good in the show um, and has his own role to play, there the the plots and characters that f- that sort of f- are in the orbit around him are like this is an ensemble piece. This is not just about one person, and and across the whole cast, across every single story and arc that they tell, um, there is not a weak there's not a weak half-assed moment to be found. Everything fires on all cylinders. And if it's, and if it's not like, and, and, and the way, and the reason I say that is because it's, they, they is, it's not that every single moment of is, is, is transcendently sublime, but rather that they fundamentally understand how to set up and pay off all of the stories that they put out. Um, this is, uh, the, the, it's it's it just i i can only say so many nice things about andor it is so amazingly put together and finally getting through the end of the first season has been an absolute joy and delight uh it is things i did not know even know i wanted from star wars and andor just fucking nails it <laughs> well let me um let me maybe uh provide a calming more down-to-earth voice with regards to Andor. Um, actually, I don't know that I can. Uh, I think I may fully agree with you. It is uh, probably the best thing I've seen since the original trilogy. I, I think you're 100% right. There is something about it that is very tangible. Um, the one thing that I think a lot of the shows and a lot of the prequels and sequels got wrong is to live by the rule of the very first thing that you see when you see star Wars, which is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I think the essence of that phrase is captured in Andor. It feels old. It feels lived in, in a way that nothing else that I've seen from the star Wars universe does. Um, if I have a complaint, it is one complaint. And I've said this elsewhere. Um, Man, Diego Luna's feet, they freak me out. They freak me out. There's an entire arc that really focuses on his feet. I'm going to say that. God, I never thought I would have to hear you talk about Andor's feet again. Just, but yes, that is, it, you, you, you have look, talked about it. It's a it. small thing. I, it just totally freaks me out. I, it, it doesn't lessen the show at all. But dude's got some feet. That's all I'm saying. Dude's got some feet. Uh, but the rest of it is sublime. I've always loved Diego Luna. Um, First time I saw him was Itumama Tambien. I saw that when that had first come out, and it was one of those galvanizing movies for me. It is truly one of the films that kind of shocked my system, and I never forgot him as an actor. So to see him grow and to do other roles and then to finally come here and own this, I think it was just under 10 hours. I mean, it was 10 episodes. You know, they, they kind of varied in timing, but... He, it is very much a group effort. It is, he is not the sole person on the show, but man, he brings everything together in such a way. The whole show does. Tony Gilroy did a phenomenal job. I can't, all I would be doing is just reiterating what you said. I've liked a lot of other Star Wars, but nothing compared to what I saw in this first season of Andor. I'm so excited to hear that it's coming back and that it's already in production. So we'll be getting it hopefully sooner rather than later. Great, great recommendation, John. Yep. 
What uh, what might potentially you have for us tonight, Chris? So mine's going to be a little bit weird. I don't have a recommendation for a film that I've seen. I've got a recommendation for stuff that you should seek out, and I'll be seeking out as well. Um, the first one that I want to point out that I will be watching tomorrow, I'm just so excited. Uh, anytime Guillermo del Toro does something new, I'm right there for it. Uh, he had just released Pinocchio, his version of Pinocchio. Um, and, uh, that's, uh, premiering on Netflix. It actually premiered on Friday. We're recording this the day after on December 10th. So, um, if you have Netflix, you're now able to see this stop motion beauty. I know I'll be checking it out. Um, so that was just like a, a real quick thing. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about was, um, a channel more than anything else. Um, if you've been in the movie news at all, you've been hearing a lot of stuff about uh, layoffs from AMC and uh, that they kind of kind of misaligned on what they thought their revenue would be from their streaming services. And as a result, there are a lot of layoffs across the company for American Movie Classics and AMC+. Plus. One of the um, streaming services that's being affected by that is Shudder. And if you know us, you know how important Shudder is, especially when it comes to Hooptober time. Um, uh, Shudder is a horror streaming service uh, that is offered by AMC, but it's different than anything else out there. It is entirely curated by people who love the horror genre. So it is not kind of like a Netflix, Amazon Prime, just buy up all the shit that you can kind of algorithm to the masses. It has people that are dedicated to going and seeking out the best in kind of fringe movies, classic movies, new wave stuff, and bringing it to you. So when you see a film showing up on Shutter, rest assured that that film has been selected by an actual human being because they thought there was value to bring to it. So there is no better time than now to kind of check out the movies that are there. Um, I did just recently see a film that I really liked. I watched the movie Blood Relatives, which just came out, premiered on Shutter. This is the writing and directing debut of Noah Segan. Uh, speaking of Star Wars, Noah Segan you might know because he is in every single Ryan Johnson film, which means, yes, he was in The Last Jedi. He's also in The Brothers Bloom. He is also in Brick. He is also in Looper, where he played Kid Blue. Uh, he's also in um, Knives Out, where he played the um, assistant deputy. Uh, I don't know if he's in Glass Onion, which comes out later in the month. I'm going to assume he is in some role or other because he's great friends with Ryan Johnson. But this is Noah Segan kind of branching out on his own. It is a story about a Jewish vampire who suddenly discovers that he has a daughter who is also just kind of burgeoning in the ways of being a vampire. This was not on his plate. It is a small independent film that would be entirely wonderful and successful, even if it had nothing to do with vampires. If you took all of the vampire stuff out of it, you still have a really touching story about a kind of a drifter who is trying to understand what his life is made of, understanding that there is a responsibility that he now has to adhere to. But the fact that they're vampires and the fact that he's extremely Jewish just brings like a bite to this. Like it has teeth like, like gremlins. There is some teeth to this film that just makes it a little bit of cut above what you would expect. Um, that's the type of stuff that Shudder finds. Um, so you can see it there where it has its kind of streaming premiere. They also just released a wounded fawn, um, 
which is just, uh, I'm going to uh, apologize because I want to say a name, but I don't think the name that I want to say is the actual writer director of the film. So I want to make sure that I say it right. Um, but it's by the maker of uh, Jacob's Wife, which is one of the films that I had seen, um, for the past. Hooptober. Uh, Travis Stevens, the writer director, Travis Stevens. He did Jacob's wife. He did girl on the third floor. This is his new movie, a wounded fawn. And it is, uh, it looks to be crazy. Um, so if I have a recommendation, it's to really support, uh, the shutter service. If you like horror, if you like things that are of a kind of an extreme nature, um, they are global in their tastes. They are, they have stuff from the, 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, all the way up to brand new. They have great documentaries. Um, I was telling you, John, the other day about uh, a four-part series by Brian Fuller, the guy who created Hannibal and um, Wonderfall oh, and uh, all those shows um, called Queer for Fear which talks about the history of being queer in horror cinema. And it lays bare some amazing things about uh, the classic universal horror monsters, about Alfred Hitchcock, about James Whale, who was the director of Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. And I, I hear all these people who talk about, like, don't spoil my vision of the movie. And I, I pity those people greatly because when I see a documentary like this and I hear these voices talk about the hidden codes and the, the things that went into the making of films that I grew up loving for 45 years, almost 50 years at this point, it just makes me want to go back and revisit them again with new eyes. It makes me want to seek out these other films that are talked about. Um, so that's my recommendation. Go, go to Shutter. Go to some of these other smaller curated streaming services and see what's there to offer. You, I guarantee you will find something that will open your eyes and make you a better viewer and a better person because of what you've just seen. Even if it's like gooey vampires, uh, you know, feasting on other people. Especially if it's gooey vampires. It's, feasting I, on it, other people. Of course, especially if it's gooey vampires. <laughs> Chris, it's been good to uh, reconnect with you in this sort of podcasty sort of way. Uh, I know that uh, you and I sort of uh, are at some so, uh, at some weird uh, personal moments, but it is uh, it's it was really good to to get back and into the saddle and and chat movies. Uh, Absolutely. Hope that this hope that this can uh, brighten up. Uh, give you a, a bit of positive spark as you head out into the next few weeks of insanity, uh, professional, personal, all that good stuff. And, uh, for everyone out there, you know, stay safe, take care of each other, do some nice things for yourselves. If you can connect with people, watch some good movies. Yeah. Um, everything you just said, um, I will add this. Um, so, hey, what's coming up in 2023, you may ask? Uh, so interestingly enough, at the time of this recording, you probably have heard about this small thing called the Sight and Sound Poll, which only happens every 10 years. Uh, and since it's 2022, it just came out. 
So uh, in January, John and I will be talking a little bit about that. We will be covering two films that were blind spots to us that uh, appeared on the Sight and Sound poll. And uh, us, along with Dan Morris, our new writer who is absolutely killing it. If you haven't gone to the website right now, he is uh, doing an in-depth series about the films of Claire Denise. Um, so he is knocking it out of the park there. But all three of us will be kind of... Um, posting if not that we were ever invited to partake but if we were what or would, would have any interest to be honest yeah or <laughs> not that anyone has any interest but if you do and i know some of you do because we have we actually have a number of people who follow the website as well uh all three of us will be posting what we would have posted were we invited <laughs> our top 10 films for the sight and sound poll and uh then we'll be covering a couple of them on the episode and then from there who knows what will happen, but uh, we really have enjoyed everyone who has stuck around for these past couple of years. All I can tell you is um, John and I are going to keep doing it because we have a blast talking to each other and talking about movies. So thank you for staying on the journey with us. Hell of a lot more to come in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll, uh, we'll see everyone in, uh, in the new year. Bye. <laughs>